All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning. And we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to mention two things before we pray this morning. One is, an, is especially a reminder to our visitors you're new to our church, we are uh, very limited in what we are able to do uh, in our gatherings and the space that is provided for us. So we're not this weird church that like doesn't believe in heating in the wintertime. Uh, we are in a situation where we, we, there's not much we can do about it. And we know it's cold and the heat in this building is not able to keep up with the cold. And it's just the nature of the season that we're in. And so fight hard this morning to set it aside. You know, stop thinking about your toes. Uh, set it aside and fight to hear the Word of God. Um, fight to hear the Word of God. This is another reminder to visitors, but also members, is that our, our bread and butter, our strategy as we gather together as the Church of Jesus every Lord's Day is to preach through books of the Bible, like Preaching through Matthew is where, where we've been uh, for the last several months. And pick up where we left off the week before. And every year, um, around Christmas and around New Year, we do several standalone messages from God's Word of general encouragement to the body of Christ. And that plan was extended. We had COVID hit our pastoral team uh, several weeks ago. And so we have, we're deeper into January than what we would normally be in these standalone messages. Uh, but we have one this morning. And next week we plan to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to talk to you about why we're going to spend time in this particular passage of God's Word. Typically you'll hear an encouragement around the new year of uh, something about the Scriptures, something about reading the Bible, and we did that. Typically, you'll hear something about the, the brevity of life and, and, and this uh, reminder that we need to be serving Jesus in this world. And today, I want to give us an exhortation from God's word that deals in the matter of our vocations, the thing that we find ourselves doing so often. And I want us to make sure that we understand that God's word uh, speaks to this. And I think it's a needed uh, teaching in the body of Christ, and not just at Grace Community Church, but I find it to be a very common thing for Christians to think about calling and their work and their labor and their vocations wrongly. And I'm convinced as we think wrongly about these things, it'll rob us of gospel joy that Jesus Christ has died to give his church. And so we want to ask God, that the light of God's word would be revealed to us this morning and that he would set us free from bad mindsets, wrong mindsets, and that we would see all of our life as service to Jesus, not just this morning as we gather together as a church. And so let's pray to that end this morning and then we'll dive into the scriptures together. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. Lord, and we need you, God. Lord, we need you for life and breath and for all things, Lord. In the natural world, Lord, and in the spiritual world, we can't do anything apart from you, God. We know that, and we ask that you would remind us of that even now as we humble ourselves and ask that you would speak to us from your word, Lord. Lord, we believe what you reveal in your word that unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we believe that, Lord, even as we come to your word this morning. That preaching is in vain, Lord, unless you instruct us by your Holy Spirit. And you do, God. You are so faithful to give us what is needed. You are so faithful to feed your children. And we call upon your faithfulness today. And we ask that you would nourish our souls, Lord. Give what is needed all across this room in hundreds of different circumstances. God, let your word go forth today as light 
that banishes discouragement, that banishes error, wrong ways of, of thinking, Lord. And God, I pray that we as a local church would be built up in the truth today, edified by your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we get started this morning, I want you to imagine that you are given the task of surveying everyone in this room with two questions. That you were, that you were to survey all the people in this room, question number one, what is your calling? I want you to think about this morning all the different answers that you would get to that question of how this was answered over and over again as you walk around and you ask, young and old, all different types, what's your calling? And then the follow-up question, if you were to do this survey, are you living in it? Like, what are you called to, number one, and are you doing it, number two? What's your calling and are you living in it? I want you to think about the answers that you would get to those questions. And I want to remind us that Christians, more than anybody else on the planet, they, we care about questions like that. About what we're called to and are, we're, are we doing what we're called to do. And we care about that because we love Jesus. And we want to glorify Jesus Christ with our life. Christians long to serve Jesus. They, want, they don't want to waste. We don't want to waste our life. And so there's a form of this in, every, uh, in the heart of every Christian. This is that famous poem, a line from that famous poem. I believe it's by C.T. Studd. And it, and it goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Christians care about this. We want to glorify Jesus with our life. Whether that means we have another five minutes. Or whether that means that we have another 50 years in this world. We want it to count. We don't want to waste it. We don't want to squander it. And rightly so. Rightly so. But I want to submit to you this morning that a very dangerous mindset can creep into the Christian life through a distorted understanding of this common word calling. Calling. And so often, and this is probably what came to uh, a lot of our minds when we think about surveying people and asking this question, what are you called to? Often calling is understood to be that one big thing that you were made for. That one big role that you're going to take on one day. That one you know, big job that was designed just for you. That one phase of life that everything else prepares you for and then boom, then you're in your calling. This is how it's often understood. This starts very early for many of us uh, with, with good and innocent questions of, of, of little Johnny, what are you going to do when you grow up? And, and the answers are often in that, uh, that realm of this one big thing, this one big job. That's what I want to do when I grow up. And most of the time, if we're honest, if we're paying attention, that word calling is only used to describe certain types of jobs. The jobs that we uh, understand to be most enjoyable are the most important kinds of jobs. And so we're, if, we're, if we're paying attention, that word calling is applied to some vocations but not others. You're called to be a pastor. You're called to be a missionary. Maybe you're called to be a doctor. Maybe you're called to be a lawyer. But jobs that are deemed more common, you know, like uh, service industry jobs or a janitor, you know, for example... Very rarely do you hear that expressed in terms of this is my calling. Very rarely. And so I want us to pay attention. There's something going on there in the way that we're understanding this that I want to submit is actually dangerous to the Christian life. Uh, when we understand it, everything else is preparatory for this. i got to get to my calling. I'm not there yet, but I'm on the way there. And then once I get there, man, 
then I'll be really living. Then I'll be set. Then I'll be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When understood in this way, it easily becomes a functional, uh, functionally the way that we define our identity. This one big thing for which we were made. And this sets us up for trouble. And so I want us to bring 1 Corinthians 7 right into that common mindset, that common understanding of calling. So let's turn there together this morning and let's read God's word and let's be taught from the scriptures. Let's be addressed by God this morning and how we can better understand this aspect of our life. 1 Corinthians 7, I'll begin reading in verse 17 and we will read through Verse 24. Let's read God's word together. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free was when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition... Each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. All right, this is God's word to us, Grace Community Church, this morning. And I hope you were paying attention as we were reading that passage that there was a word that kept showing up. There's a repeated word in this paragraph of scripture, and that word was calling. I hope you noticed it. It happened eight times in seven verses. God's word uh, addressed this topic of calling, of calling. Now, hope you also notice this, that seven of those eight times that that word calling is used in this passage, it's referring to what has been called the effective call of God. The effective call. The moment that someone became a Christian. When they were called by God. When they were summoned to salvation. Not just the general call when they were invited to believe the gospel. I received many of those calls before I was summoned to Jesus Christ by faith. The effective call of God. Where God calls us out of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. A Christian, that's what you are. You are the called of God. You have been called by God. In this decisive moment, some of you know exactly where you were when this happened. Some of you aren't aware exact, exactly where you were when this happened. But this happened for every Christian. They were called by God. He says this twice in verse 18, at the time of your call, he's, he's getting Christians to remember. What was true about you when you were called to Christ? Says it again, verse 20, that condition in which he was called. Says it again in verse 21, when you were called. Twice in verse 22 and again in verse 24, over and over. This decisive moment, the very beginning of the Christian life is the call of God. 
the summons to salvation. Now, this is the sovereign work of God. This is where that Reformed theology stuff, it matters. That, that, that we are reflecting on this moment, not where we figured things out, but where Jesus addressed us, our inner man, like he spoke to Lazarus in the tomb when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. There was a moment like that at the beginning of the Christian life where the God of Genesis 1 that said, let there be light and there was light, that God shone into the heart of Christians and we saw the glory of Christ for the first time in our life when we were called. Paul addresses these same Christians earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 the ninth verse of this letter, and he puts some meat on this word. He, he says to these same Christians that, that are reflecting on their call, he says, you are called, listen, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is really important. That when that word shows up calling all over the New Testament, not, in, not just in 1 Corinthians 7, all over the Bible, the primary way it's used and understood is right here. You are, what's your calling? What's your fundamental calling? What's the core identity of a Christian? It's this. You have been summoned and brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have a bond with Jesus, an unbreakable bond. You have been called into Christ. This is the identity of a Christian. And we need to understand this well. The most fundamental thing about us is not the stuff we're doing Monday through Friday, the most fundamental thing about a Christian is that we are in Christ Jesus. We have been called by God. This is the effective call of God. Changes everything. Before the call of God, there's only deadness and death. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. After the call of God, it changes everything. We were made alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. This is the work of God that changes everything. It changes eternity being called by God. It's a fundamental truth of a Christian. We are summoned to salvation. Now, upon that foundation of the primary meaning of this word called is the effective call of God, we, get, we come back to verse 17. We come back to verse 17. Eight times the word is used in our passage. Seven times it refers to the effective call of God. But in verse 17, it's used in a different way. The word is used in a different way. And here in verse 17, the meaning of the word, it comes a lot closer to the way we normally use that word calling in our normal way of speaking, in our normal way of understanding it, that it comes closer to our understanding of our vocation, the things that we've been called to do. But I want us to notice a decisive difference in verse 17. And this, this, is, this is a worldview shifter. The decisive difference is this. Verse 17 does not refer to the future circumstances that you choose of your own your way somewhere. Verse 17 actually refers to the present circumstances that God has assigned to you. Okay? Your calling is where you find yourself right now, God's word says. Paul says, this is the life that God has assigned to you, brothers and sisters. This is your calling. It's not that big thing for which you were made one day, but it's the totality of the circumstances that you find yourself in right now. Right now. And then we find Paul's commandment running through this passage is the commandment for every Christian. Live that life. 
That's the life that you need to be living. The one that God has assigned. Look how many times he says this. Verse 17. Live the life the Lord has assigned to him. Look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. I want you to think of how, how backwards this is from the way that we're stuck on thinking of. The, the way that we're thinking is, I'm going to get there one day. going to get there one day. And God's word saying, stay right there. Serve him right there. Serve God right there. That's your calling right there. Glorify Jesus right there. Now, this is what blows my mind about this passage. I've, I've wanted to preach this passage five years at least. This is what blows my mind about this passage is the way that verse 17 ends. He says this, this is my rule in all the churches. Now, I love ecclesiology. I love it. I think it glorifies Jesus Christ. I love to give my mind to it. I love to read big books on ecclesiology of Jesus' rule in all the churches. And I'm just being honest with you. You give me a piece of paper with a heading across the top that says, what's the rule in all the churches? What's that rule? My first five answers are never going to have anything to do with this. It's contrary to the way I think. Okay, And the thing that I think is so helpful about that is, my goodness, look how much weight the Word of God puts on this right here. This is the rule in all the churches that a Christian must live the life that God assigns him or her. And that language tells us several things. It tells us we're not dealing with just this, you know, specific situation going on in Corinth. It's the rule for all the churches. It tells us that we're not just dealing with this, you know, situation in the Greco-Roman world of something's happening right here. And then later we won't have to worry about this stuff. No, this is the rule in all the churches. This is important to Jesus. This is important for churches that want to submit to the word of God. And so the concept is simple in this passage. God's, God's word says remain. Serve God in your present circumstances. Or you could say it like this. Be a Christian right where you are. Right where you are. Or you can even simplify it this way, brothers and sisters. Blossom where you are planted. The Lord Jesus has planted you in your circumstances. That's where he wants you to be fruitful. This is the rule in all the churches. Simple concept. The difficulty is found in living this out. The difficulty is found in living it out because obedience here requires that we have to deal with discontentment in our life. Obedience here means that we got to fight for a deep contentment in our God if this is the rule in all the churches. And so obedience here means first and foremost that we have to be in this practice and rhythm and posture of acknowledging God's sovereignty in our life, in our present circumstances. They're not just things that are happening to us. They're assignments that God has given us. They're places where God has planted us. We have to acknowledge his sovereign hand. And instead of anxiously longing for that change in circumstances, we must receive with thankfulness the lot that our heavenly father has assigned to us. And so this principle that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 7, it is directly opposed to the mindset that we are all too familiar with. And I could call it this morning, just for simplicity's sake, that one day mindset. That one day mindset. One day, when I finally get that job, one day, when I finally get that platform and influence that I think I need. One day, when I finally get married. 
one day when I finally have kids, one day when I finally have more free time, one day when I finally get into the ministry, one day when I finally make it overseas as a missionary, one day. Now I want you to know all, all those are wonderful things. They're wonderful things, but I want to remind us this morning that the universal rule in all the churches is to serve God now and to serve God right where you're at. Not later, but to be content now. Not after you get what you want, but that you be content now, that you serve God now, that you glorify God in this assignment, in this lot, that you acknowledge his sovereign hand. So this grass is always greener on the other side of the fence mindset, that metaphor, many of you have heard that. You're on this side of the fence, you're looking at the other side of the fence, you're like, oh, it looks, looks nice over there. I wish I was over there. This constant longing for the next thing, the new thing, it is destructive to the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, do you see that it assaults God's sovereignty? And that it refuses to acknowledge that you're planted by him. It assumes too much on your part that you're sovereign. That you should be the one figuring out this stuff. And we don't want to assault God's sovereignty. We want to submit to it. We want to acknowledge his hand in our circumstances. It also, grass is always greener mindset. It also is an expression of distrust in God's wisdom. In this sense, that it pretends that we know better than God. And we don't know better than God. And we need to submit to this, that our God knows better than we do how to get glory from our life. He does. God knows how to build a fruitful Christian life that glorifies his holy name more than we do. He does. He does. He knows how to make fruitful Christians. He has no problems in ever wasting any Christian's life. He knows how to do it. He knows how to present us faultless and blameless before him on the final day. And so those who struggle with this one day mindset, this grass is always greener mindset, some of us would do well to remember that the grass is also greener above a septic tank. Do you ever, you ever thought about that? That the things that we often think about that are going to make us happy will not actually make us happy. The things that we find ourselves longing for so many times, so many times they're not what we need. And if we just learn to trust and submit to the wisdom of our Father in heaven, we glorify Him. We would glorify Him. Paul illustrates this principle of contentment in this passage. He gives us a picture of what it looks like when he pivots to, to slavery in this passage. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he begins to address Christian slaves within the church in Corinth. And I want us to understand what Paul is doing here. Okay, I want you to think about this. If Paul can establish this principle of contentment in whatever lot that has been assigned to you, if he can establish that principle in the life of a Christian slave, think about how this argument works from greater to lesser. If a Christian slave is to be content and serve the Lord Jesus, how much more the rest of us who find ourselves in thousands of circumstances that are almost infinitely less of a disadvantage than a Christian slave. Do you see? If he can ground it here, think about, think about how much hope there is for you. Think about how applicable this is for you. And this is exactly what he does in verse 21. Verse 21, Paul says, Were you a bondservant? And that word just means slave. Verse 21, Were you a slave... When called, and we already said that's the effective call of God. Were you a slave when you were saved? When God regenerated you, forgave all your sins and made you new? And everything changed about you, but 
but not this, you're still a slave. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? God's word says, do not be concerned about it. Do not be concerned about it. Now, I want you to think about how wrongly we have been trained about what we need to hear in difficult circumstances, okay? And I want you to think in a hundred times out of a hundred almost that if, that if we were ever, if we're in a difficult circumstance and we've never been in a circumstance like this one and somebody said, don't be concerned about it. We write that off so quickly. Look how dismissive this person is. Look how much compassion this person uh, lacks. Where, where's your compassion? And I want us to remember what we're dealing with here. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. This is the Apostle Paul. Nobody in this room has the compassion of the Apostle Paul. He's not dismissing anything here. He's filled with compassion for this person in this horrendous uh, life circumstance. And what does he say? He says, don't be concerned about it. Do not be concerned about it. Now, the amazing thing in this, in this uh, verse 21 is what Paul does not say. Think about that. Think about what Paul does not say when he's talking to the Christian's slave. He does not say, listen, brother, do everything you can to flee your master and do it tonight. Get out of there tonight. You've got to get out of there tonight. He doesn't say that. And that surprises us. Because we're thinking, man, there's no way that guy needs to be in that situation. There's no way he can glorify God in that situation. And Paul says, don't be concerned about it. Don't be concerned about it. Now, of course, of course he permits this slave to gain his freedom. And you see that in uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 21, the end of verse 21, he says... But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. And there's this process in the Greco-Roman world where uh, a person, where the status of slave is removed from a person. And they're not a slave anymore. They're a freed man. And that process is called manumission. And Paul says, if you are able to enter into manumission and, and gain your freedom, brother, do it. And he probably would say, do it quickly. No problems here. If the opportunity avails yourself to get out of this situation, brother, take it. Brother, do it. But listen, in the meantime, because that's not a guarantee, Paul says, in the meantime, don't be concerned about it. Stop letting this stuff dominate your life. Don't be concerned about it. The, the, the essential thing, the decisive factor is not, i got to get out of this situation, but i got to serve Jesus. Don't be concerned about it. God's word says, why? Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. And so in order to ground this counsel of don't be concerned about it, it's not just this dismissive attitude towards suffering. In order to ground this counsel, he goes deeper than the circumstance. How in the world can you tell a slave not to be concerned about it? He reminds him that his true identity is in Christ Jesus. You might be a slave, but you know what? What's more true about you? You're a freed man in the Lord. And nobody can take that away from you. That's the decisive thing. That's the ultimate thing. Your circumstances can change all your life, but not your bond with Jesus. Not your identity in Jesus Christ. Christians belong to Christ no matter their circumstances. And so we ought not to be concerned about our circumstances and constantly coveting a change in our circumstances. There's a difference in, in desiring a better thing, and even good things like marriage. You know, it's a good thing to desire to be married if you're single, but guess what? It's a bad thing to covet marriage. It's a bad thing to make it an idol. The decisive thing in your life that's going to give you happiness, it won't. We were made for Christ. And so we belong to Jesus. The slave that is a Christian 
is a freed man in the Lord. And what does that tell us? It tells us that earthly status is ultimately irrelevant. It is ultimately irrelevant. If you have status, social status, like a king or a prince, or whether you have no social status, like a slave, is irrelevant. The only thing that's decisive, ultimate, is that you are serving Jesus Christ, that you belong to Christ. And this principle was powerfully illustrated at the end of the book of Genesis. You remember the story of Joseph. We just talked through this in the last year you know, of our church, the story of Joseph. We see this. We see a man who learns how to be brought low. And he's not only a slave in Egypt, but a, but a prisoner's slave in Egypt. And yet the Lord is with him. And he serves as God. And he knows how to serve God in that abased place, in that humble circumstance, in suffering. And that same man, he knows how to abound. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to abound. He was raised to the prince of Egypt, the ruler in the land of Egypt, second down from Pharaoh and everywhere Joseph went. You remember this? They yelled out before him, bow the knee. So great of, a, of an earthly status was given to this man. But you know what? Nothing changed. He served God when he had no earthly status. He served God when he was the prince of Egypt. The Lord was with him. He glorified God as a prisoner and then he glorified God as a prince. You don't need earthly status in any form to glorify God. You think you need it, but you don't really need it. It's not decisive. It's not ultimate. And neither is social status or cultural privilege. Look at what, there's a lot going on here. And we don't have time to get into this Jew-Gentile relations that's going on in this Greco-Roman world. But some are trying to improve their situation by taking circumcision. And Paul says in verse 19, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. What is the thing that matters? What is the thing that deserves our attention that we should be mulling over all the time? Not this, not this, but keeping the commandments of God. Serving Jesus is the decisive thing, the ultimate thing. Now, I want us to understand how freeing this principle is in 1 Corinthians 7. If these things are true... If these things are true, illustrated with slavery even, if these things are true, this means, brothers and sisters, your circumstances, here's the good news, here's the encouragement, cannot stop you from serving God. They cannot stop you from trusting God. They cannot stop you from walking with Jesus and bearing fruit for God and bringing glory to God. Now I want you to think about all the implications this has all across this room. Think about the implications of this principle for that single Christian who longs to be married. Think about how helpful this is. Think about it. Nothing can stop you from serving Jesus. Nothing can stop you, not, not later, right now from serving the Lord. Think about how helpful for this is for those who feel stuck in a dead-end job. You feel that way? I felt that way before. How helpful is this to you? You're stuck in a dead-end job or you, you feel like you're stuck in a boring job. That nothing can stop you from glorifying God. Nothing can stop you from serving Jesus. What about those who feel like their daily work doesn't matter to God? And this other thing that people do, like pastors and missionaries and doctors and lawyers, man, that stuff, you know, that matters. But these homemakers in our church, their full-time job is, uh, you know, wiping booties and, and kissing bobos. And they're, and they're, and they're, and they're like, I, I just don't understand. How does this matter to God? Think about this principle. Every circumstance is an assignment, an allotment. 
It is given to us and we are to serve God there. Think about how helpful this principle is to the kids in our midst right now that are constantly struggling with this mindset of one day I'll be a Christian. When I get bigger, when I grow up, I'll be a Christian and I'll, and I'll love God and know God's word and serve Jesus. Think about how helpful this is. This is a wonderful thing. That we don't have this, you know, one day religion, this one day gospel, one day I'll serve him. One day when I finally get there, I'll be happy and I'll bring glory and I'll be fruitful. It's a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. We have a right now gospel, a right now Jesus, a bond with Jesus Christ by faith that allows us to glorify him in every single circumstance. Little ones, young teenagers, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till you're an adult or older or whatever that you know, imaginary thing is in your mind. You don't have to wait to serve God. You've got an assignment and a calling right now. Your calling right now is to serve Him there. He's planted you wherever you are to serve Him. I want you to think about how helpful this principle is to those who are suffering right now. To brothers and sisters who are bowed down by suffering right now. Maybe you feel like your face is in the dirt under the weight of your circumstances. You're suffering and it's hard. And this principle means, what does this principle mean for you? It means that you can glorify him right there in the dirt. You don't have to wait till you're out of the dirt, till the circumstances change, to where God hears your prayers. You can build an altar in the dirt with your face bowed down and suffering. You can serve God right there. It's not one day later. It's right now, Jesus. Glorify him now. Right in the midst of a fiery trial, a Christian can bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll mention four practical ways that 1 Corinthians 7, 17 helps us. And I think this would be so helpful for many of you, if you, especially if you struggle with, man, am I doing what God has called me to do? You need to get this universal rule for all the churches in you. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. How does it help us? I'll give you four ways. Number one, it helps us to think rightly about, I struggled to name this, I'm going to call it social mobility. And really what I'm saying there is it helps us to think rightly about the world that we live in. And the reason I call it social mobility is I want you to be aware that you have hundreds of choices in front of you at any moment. The ability to choose where you live, the ability to choose where you work, what school to attend, what kind of job to have. Am I going to get married? And if I am, who am I going to get married to? There's all kinds of choices. We have a tremendous privilege in front of us. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't have those choices. I'm speaking generally. Okay, I understand that there's harder circumstances, less freedom but I want you to think about the tremendous privilege that we have to make the kinds of choices that we make almost all the time. For most of human history, brothers and sisters, Christians did not have those choices in front of them. And you don't even have to go back far for this. Like, just rewind about 150 years uh, and then ask that Christian kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answers are fundamentally different. They're fundamentally, they might not even understand this, the, the question, what do you mean what I want to be when I grow up? Like, I get to choose that. Like, my daddy was a farmer. My granddaddy was a farmer. My granddaddy's granddaddy was a farmer. And then we've lived here for about 500 years, so I think I'll be a farmer, you know. Um, what, what university are you going to go to? What, what do you mean university? I, I don't know how to read. Like, do you understand? Like, we're in this tremendous um, privileged situation where we have all this, all this freedom to choose in front of us, this social mobility. 
And this social freedom, and I want us to be aware of it, it can create an illusion of happiness. That if I can rig the system four steps, you know, to, to my end game, this choice, this choice, this choice, and then boom, gravy train. Good shit lollipop. I got it set from there on. If I can rig it and make this choice, this choice, man, I'm set after that. It's an illusion that you, you are tempted to think in this culture that if you, can, if, you, if you can game the system and get a few of these choices right, then you'll be happy. But here's the thing. You won't be happy. You were not made for this world. You were made to be fulfilled in your relationship with God and your bond with Jesus Christ. You were made for him. You were made for Jesus. Everything else is a cheap counterfeit substitute to Jesus Christ. And this text reminds us, it humbles us in this culture, and this is a prideful thing to think, man, I can just gain the system and my life will turn out just like I want. Well, many of you have been around long enough to know it don't work like that. Well, you think you can decide, you know, often you find yourself in situations that you can't change at all and you definitely didn't choose them. And this text reminds us that we have to serve God where we are. We have to serve God where we are. Now, I want to say this clearly. It is not wrong to change or improve your circumstances. Paul's not against that, even if you're a slave, okay? especially if you're a slave. It's not wrong to change or improve your circumstances. What is wrong? It's wrong to put your hope in the change of your circumstances. Or to say it this way, it's wrong to covet a lot that God has not assigned to you. That's the universal rule in all the churches. Christians are not idolaters, covetous idolaters. We are submitters to our sovereign God. And this is important because some of the circumstances that you're going to want to change, you can't change. And the encouragement in this passage is even there you can serve God. Jesus, you can't always change your circumstances, but you can always be faithful to Jesus Christ. And so, the most fundamental question, this is so helpful when you're thinking about um, how, how, which path am I going to go in life? The most fundamental question is not, what kind of job will I have when I grow up? Or when will I be married? But will I keep the commandments of God? Will I waste my life in disobedience and not serving Jesus? Or will I spend my life obeying my Savior and bringing glory to God no matter what lot I find myself in? Some of you have been married long enough to know when you got married and you woke up on the honeymoon, sin didn't die, did it? It didn't. Like it, it, It's not made uh, to, to fulfill us. We're made for Jesus. It's not the... The solution to all of our problems. Number two, it helps us think rightly about singleness. I'll go quick here. Singleness, if we're understanding 1 Corinthians 7, 17 rightly, it is not just a pass-through state. Like uh, some of us think about, you know, maybe a part-time job that you have. Man, I'm just passing through. Some of you business owners, like Jay and Paul, you hate hiring people that think like that. Man, I'm going to use this job for a little while, and I'm going to get through somewhere else. Singleness is not a pass-through state. Singleness is a time for obeying Jesus. Singleness is a time for serving Christ. Singleness is a time for being content in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a time for serving right there where God has planted you. Number three. It helps us to think rightly about marriage. No use in daydreaming on who you wish your spouse would be. No use in that. Better off in time, it's, it's high time to love and serve the spouse that God gave you. It's your assignment. This is the lot that you have received. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Serve him there. Glorify God there. Stop daydreaming about your you know, tweaks that you would make to your perfect spouse and love the spouse that God actually gave you. Acknowledging his sovereign hand. Number four, it helps us think rightly about our vocations. Our vocations. The Christian view of work is that there's dignity in every form of labor. 
And the only exception to this, except like for explicitly sinful, you know, vocations. Like you can't serve in there as a hitman. Like you get it, right? Uh, um, but everything else after that one nuance, you know, you can't, you can't serve him in illicit activity. But every other form of labor, there's dignity to it. Why? Because we can serve God there. Paul's example here is, is the Christian slave. Even the slave could do his work with dignity. Why? Because ultimately he wasn't serving his master. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he was serving his Lord Jesus Christ. All forms of labor, every single occupation has dignity. It's a calling. It's, it's a place where God plants some and not others. And the goal and the rule is serving there. Blue collar jobs and white collar jobs. Service industry and surgeons. Homemakers and hotel builders. Technology workers. Young college students and elderly shut-ins. All those and everything in between can glorify God in the lot that God has given them. And this is part of the good news of the gospel. Uh, you know, like, and pastors ought to be, you know, uh, 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 preaching and leading in such a way where we're trying to raise up uh, uh, missionaries and elders in this church. But guess what? It's not biblical that we're trying to make every church member an elder or a missionary. It's not, that's not success. That's not like the mark that we're trying to achieve. You say, why not? That sounds pretty good. Well, yeah, maybe, but it's not the universal rule in all the churches. It, it, it sounds good theoretically. The only problem is it doesn't acknowledge the sovereign work of God in the life of this church. He has planted you brothers and sisters, and, and we ought not to have these wrong ideas about ministry being the real way to serve God. Do you see this? Every Christian can serve him in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. Final objection goes like this. This sounds wonderful, but I've struggled with this stuff long enough to, I know there's deep discontentment in my heart. How do I shake it? Like, I agree, I should be doing that, but I don't feel that way. How do I shake this discontentment? And the answer is found in the two sweetest words of our passage. It's not even close. And they happen to be the two last words in our passage. I want you to look at verse 24. I'll read verse 24 again. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. So more of what we've already you know, been talking about, stay there, serve him there. And then Paul throws in these two life-changing words, and that's what they are at the end of verse 24. And those words are with God. With God. And those are beautiful words that remind us of the gospel, that we are gospel people. We are gathered this morning even around the gospel, around the finished work of Christ. And this is not just do this, do this, do this. He says do it with God. You have God. With God. And so apparently, and I want us to feel this, the Apostle Paul thinks it's very important, very important, that Christians understand that they are not alone in their circumstances, in their vocations. He says, stay there with God. With God. I want you to think about what better could be said. He could say, stay there in those circumstances with a million dollars. And it doesn't even approach with God. He could say, stay there with power. And it, it, you have the God of power, the very source of power. It's glorious. Christians get God. Christians have God. I want you to think about the cost of those two words. What do those two words cost for Christians to be able to have God? To be able to say that they live with God? Because they're not natural. Do you know that we don't deserve to be with God? 
We don't. God made us to live with God, but our first parents were cast out of God's presence. They were banished from the presence of God because of sin. It's not an automatic, natural, normal thing for us to be with God. In fact, the natural, normal thing for sinners is to be cast into outer darkness, away from God, away from the presence of the Lord, to spend eternity away from God. That's what we deserve. The Bible's clear about this. That's what we deserve. That's what we would receive if God gave us, if God dealt with us on the basis of our performance, our obedience, our disobedience. And so that phrase, these two little words, with God being said about sinners is amazing. This is amazing that sinners can live with God. That there's a way back into the garden, into the very presence of God. There's a way back in we can have God. This is purchased for us. By the bloody death of Jesus Christ, we can live with God because Jesus was cast away from God. Jesus was plunged into outer darkness for our sins. Our sins were placed upon Christ. His righteousness is given to us. This free exchange of grace. We get God because Jesus took our wrath. It's a gospel phrase. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that the presence of God has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ. And even in, in our text, he says, you were bought with a price. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. The banished ones have come home, have been brought home because of the bloody, sacrificial, substitute death of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We get to live with God because of Jesus. That's the cost of those two words. Cost him everything. Now consider the value of those two words with God. We mentioned this just a moment ago. What else could you say that could, that could top this? What else, what else could be uh, substituted there? Nothing. The, these two words set a Christian free to serve God in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. You know why? Because they're not alone there. They're with God. They have a never-ending supply of grace. They have all the treasures of heaven at their disposal. Why? Because they get God. They have the source of all life, the source of all peace, the source of all strength, the God of all grace. They get God, and therefore they can serve Him and rejoice and be content in any circumstance, even the most difficult circumstance. Consider this math. If you have God and nothing else, you have everything. If you have everything and lack God, you have nothing. This is how decisive those two words are. It makes you rich forever or poor forever. This is the secret of contentment. Is the, the amount of value you put on those two words with God. That's a, is that a throwaway phrase to you this morning of, okay, I get it. Or when you hear that phrase, with God, you think, oh, that is the, that's the glorious one. That's the one for whom my soul was made. That's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I count everything else as a loss compared to Him. He's the treasure in the field. That's my God. That's the secret of contentment. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And the gospel assures us that this Christ, this glorious Christ, all-sufficient Christ, has been given to us in such a way that nothing and no circumstances can take him away from us. We are in Christ Jesus. Even last week we looked at that phrase in communion that we even die in Christ. We're even dead in Christ. The bond is unbreakable. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, says this, For you had compassion on those in prison 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How do you glorify God in difficult circumstances? By knowing that you have a better possession and an abiding one. And God is our better possession. God is our abiding possession. And Christians, and I only speak to Christians right now, God is with you. He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. You lack nothing in Jesus Christ. And the very best thing about your life, and you might complain all day long, okay? But from another perspective, from the, from God's, from the perspective of God's word, the very best thing about being you and living the life that God has assigned you is that God is with you. He's with you. You're not alone there. And so we need Christians who don't just go to work. We need Christians who go to work with God. We need homemakers who don't just get stuff done around the house. We need homemakers who serve with God, who know, who know that God is with them. We need little children who, who aren't just you know, doing the right things to get to adulthood, but they know that God is with me because I believe the gospel. This is the Christian mindset. God has sovereignly scattered us as salt and light in the world in all different places in all kinds of circumstances. He planted us there. And this passage exhorts us that this is the soil that God intends you to sprout in. Not another. Not the, not, not the lot of another. Not the lot of your, your neighbor that's beside you right now. But that you, were, that you would blossom, brother and sister, where God has planted you. Where God has planted you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help even now. God, we pray that you would encourage us even now, Lord, as you allow us to hear your word, give attention to your word. Lord, we pray that it would come with encouraging power this morning. God, I do pray for any in our midst, Lord, who have deep discouragement, God, about their circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would lift their head their face to the heavens this morning, that they would know where their help comes from. Lord, I pray that your light from your word would banish discouragement in our hearts. Lord, we ask for fruit. We ask to be changed. We ask to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.